Hi, I'm Jason Wachab, founder and CEO of MindBuddyGreen, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. Thanks, and enjoy the podcast. Hey, everyone. I hope you don't mind the brief interruption, but I wanted to take a minute to share something I'm really excited about right now. In today's world, many people simply view food as sustenance, entertainment, or even worse, as the enemy. But that's not how it should be, and definitely not how it has to be. What people often forget is that food fuels us, nourishes us, and is one of the most powerful, and not to mention affordable, pathways to our greatest well-being. That is why we here at MindBuddyGreen, along with some of the world's top functional health experts, have created the first ever functional nutrition program, a comprehensive training built to help you discover how you can unlock the healing powers of food. Featuring the techniques of renowned experts like Dr. Mark Hyman, Dr. Frank Lippman, Dr. Vincent Pedre, Kelly Levesque, and more. I don't By enrolling in this one-of-a-kind opportunity, you'll learn how you can heal your gut, improve your digestion, and fight inflammation. How you can use food to enhance the health of your brain and fight autoimmune disease. How to heal your thyroid, slow the aging process, and pick the perfect supplement to complement your functional nutrition habits. Plus, lifestyle changes you can start making today to prevent disease and promote long longevity. Essentially, you'll learn how to heal the body through the power of food so that you can feel rejuvenated and more alive than you ever thought possible. On top of all of this, as a student in the program, you'll receive total access to over 160 video lessons, live office hours with all instructors at various points throughout the program, exclusive self-paced content to deepen your functional nutrition knowledge, including an array of thorough study guides, writing assignments, and quizzes, discussion boards to interact with other students, and the Mind Body Green Functional Nutrition Guide Certification, the MBG FNG, upon completion of the program, and so much more. Now, just because we're so excited about this program and so excited for you to start mastering the concept of functional food, we're offering you an exclusive deal. If you sign up today, you can get this comprehensive, first-of-its-kind program for $600 off the original price, so don't wait. To sign up for this exclusive deal today, go to mindbodygreen.com slash unlock. That's mindbodygreen.com slash unlock. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this exciting news, and we hope that you'll join us by making the MindBuddyGreen Functional Nutrition Program part of your journey toward optimal well-being. Now, let's dive back into today's episode. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to take a quick moment to thank you all for listening to the podcast and to say that we want to listen to you. So if you have any questions, any dream guests, we are all ears. I would love to hear from you. So ask me anything and stay tuned for the answers or your dream guests on this very podcast. Send your questions to podcast at mindbodygreen.com. That's podcast at mindbodygreen.com. And I look forward to hearing from all of you. Thanks so much. And let's go back to the podcast. My guest this week is the best-selling author of Happy Gut and one of our collective members, Dr. Vincent Pedre. I love this episode. We dove deep into everything you'd want to know about the gut, from what foods are best for it to the surprising things that are making your gut health worse. We also talked about Dr. Pedre's Cuban heritage and how his early immigration to the United States impacted the rest of his life, including his chosen career path. 
I learned so much, including why it's always best to choose French and Italian wines, this one was fascinating, to how to know if coffee is good for your body. No DNA test necessary. If you're at all interested in easy, attainable ways to keep your gut thriving, this episode is a must listen. When you're done, be sure to check out Dr. Pedre in our own super innovative functional nutrition program here at Mind Body Green. Vincent, welcome. Great to be here. Finally. Finally. <laughs> finally. So walk us through growing up in Miami to not only becoming a doctor, but deciding to become a doctor. Big, big undertaking. So walk us through. How did that happen? Oh, wow. <laughs> well, you know that I'm of Cuban descent. Uh, my parents migrated to the U.S. through New York, Colombia, Puerto Rico, and finally Miami. Wow. Uh, fleeing communism. Uh, so they knew that Castro was going to become communist before he did, uh, just by the way he was speaking, and uh, realized that they had to get out of there. So they got married on October 7th, 1960, left Cuba on their honeymoon October 8th, the next day, and never returned. Wow. Family, everything left behind? Or? Um, we got our family out bits and pieces. So all of my close family is not in Cuba. They're all in the U.S. and Mexico and different parts. Uh, so I grew up in Miami, which is kind of like little Cuba sure. in, in the U.S. in a very, very Cuban part of Miami at the time. Now, Miami's become much more diverse mm -hmm. since I was growing up. But to give you an idea... I went to a Jesuit high school that had been actually founded in Havana. And when the Jesuits were kicked out, they came to Miami and they reestablished this school called Belen in Miami. And it was where all the Cubans sent their kids. It was 99% Cuban. There was one African-American in the entire school from 8th to 12th grade, pretty much everyone, and wow. maybe one pure American Everybody else was Cuban. Now, if you go to that school today, it is a kaleidoscope of cultures. Even, even though it's a Jesuit school, even uh, Orthodox Jews will send their kids there because it's much more affordable and they know the education is really good. <laughs> so, wow. But it's all Latin America is represented now. Colombia, Brazil, Chile, Venezuela. So it's really broadened over the years. But the Miami that I grew up in was much narrower. And I always had a vision of seeing the world of being much broader than we were. And my parents were not big into traveling, but we lived in Southwest Miami in the flight path of where the airplanes would land <laughs> in Miami International. And they were close enough at times where, you know, I could see if it was uh, British Airways or uh, SAS or sure. whatever. And I used to dream about going and seeing the world. So I always had bigger dreams, ideas that I could be more than my little Cuban world that I grew up in. And saying that I love my Cuban culture and, and I lead with the Cuban in me, even though I was born <laughs> in the United States and I'm a Cuban American for sure. Uh, but the part of me, my soul is Cuban. Um, I was very good at math. I was really good at science. But I also had an artistic side to me. I, was, uh, I grew up playing classical piano, started at the age of seven, self-motivated. Actually, my sisters used to play the piano, had abandoned it, and we had this upright piano. I know my mom used to play by ear, but not that often. 
And one day I was seven and a half years old and I don't know what happened, some light bulb went off in my head and I asked my older sister, hey, can you teach me how to read the notes and what to play on the keys? And so she taught me how to read the notes and within a week I had taught myself something that she had played with the teacher after, I don't know, two or three years of taking lessons. Wow. And I told my mom, hey, I want to play the piano, find me a teacher. And she thought, well, I'm seven and a half years old. She was like, I don't know if to take him seriously. Uh, my dad wanted me to play baseball, like all the Cubans. And I wanted to play the piano. I did do one season of baseball for my dad. And after that, I told him, dad, I'm not doing this again. It just wasn't in my personality. It wasn't my style. Uh, she found me a piano teacher was actually related to a world-renowned uh, Cuban concert pianist, Jorge Bollet. And she became almost like a third grandmother. She was old, had white hair, had the perfect level of patience to teach me. Uh, her fingers were all arthritic, so she couldn't even get on the keyboard to show me. But she had this incredible ability to tell you how to do it, and you could pick it up. And I did her first year, first set of books curriculum. She had a whole multi-year curriculum. Her first set is six months. I completed it in a month. And she told my mom, you know, if you let him continue, like he's going to become a really good so let's piano find, player. Let's find continuing education that has the longest amount of time, <laughs> medical school, <laughs> so we can keep him occupied. <laughs> and of course, my parents, you know, if you're a Cuban, you either become a doctor, a lawyer, or a CPA. <laughs> and I think this could be said across cultures, like if you're Jewish or any, any other culture. Uh, so my older sister became a CPA, my second oldest a lawyer, so of course <laughs> be a doctor. I had to become a doctor. Now I love science and I realized that in retrospect that doctoring is the perfect marriage of art and science. Mm. And I developed both sides of my brain with that. My father was the engineer. My mother was the interior designer, the artist, uh, the painter. We had her paintings hanging all over the house. Mm -hmm. And I used to sit with her when I was a kid, pre-K, and she would give me a canvas and I used to paint with her. So I always was really strong on both sides. And I think it was just perfect that I ended up in medicine, even though um, along the way, I wasn't sure if it was the right thing. And actually, after I took the MCATs in college, I was, I was actually talking to Gretchen earlier and telling her how I almost didn't go to medical school because I'm deathly afraid of needles. Or I, I should say that it's not a present thing, that now I'm, I'm totally fine with needles. And actually, in medical school, I figured out that what really bothered me about needles is when they were putting it, being put into my body, I really didn't care if a needle was being put into somebody else's <laughs> body. But I was really queasy around needles and I would get into a whole vasal vagal response. I mean, my heart rate would go up. I would break out into a cold sweat and inevitably I would black out. So if you take me to the doctor to get a vaccine, I was on the floor. <laughs> I'm like, how can I become a doctor if I'm afraid of needles? So I had taken the MCAT. I was felt like it was so stressful studying for that. And I came home and I told my parents, I don't want to be a doctor. <laughs> mm. 
And of course, we had this living room, which I feel like the living room was like the place that where if there was ever anything serious, we would sit down in the living room with my parents. <laughs> Now, this living room was also where my baby grand piano was, <laughs> so if you can imagine it. Sure. And they sat me down and they're like, well, what do you want to do? I'm like, well, I want to go to Wall Street and uh, become a an investor, a finance uh, guy. I was also, my other passion, because my dad loved investing, is I used to follow stocks with him. And I used to play around with pretend portfolios and see how my stocks would do. And of course, my parents, by the end of these, this 30 minutes to an hour, convinced me that I should become a doctor. And I'm like, okay, I, I gave in. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna think about it. I'm gonna apply to medical school. I ended up getting a scholarship to the University of Miami, uh, making it much easier decision because, um, as you know, medical school is a very expensive sure. endeavor. Uh, but I finished college in three and a half years, and partly because I just wanted to get the hell out of Ithaca, New York. I couldn't sure. take those freaking winters anymore. And I wanted to go back to Miami. And But during that time, Uh, was really, really critical for me because that is where my path in medicine was defined. So I started reading Deepak Chopra's books and I started reading Andrew Weil, Spontaneous Healing, Quantum Healing, and it started shaping the way that I felt that medicine should be. How was that received while you're going through medical school when you're bringing these books up? <laughs> <laughs> I put those aside, but during medical school, The, the, one of the things that I discovered during that time was meditation and using the breath to gain control over that anatomic mm -hmm. nervous system that would betray me every time that I had to get a needle, Oof. a vaccine, or blood draw. So instead of using that as an excuse to not attend medical school, I decided, well, I need to figure out how I can conquer this because I'm going to go to medical school and I need to become good with needles. I can't pass out sure. every time there's a needle. And it led me to this whole exploration of meditation and using the breath to calm the nervous system. And by the time I got to medical school, I had gone through my vaccine uh, rounds for hepatitis B and I was actually fine. I mean, I got nervous, but I was able to bring myself back down and stay present and I didn't pass out. And I continued meditating through the beginning of medical school and all of my first year, I was known as the Zen guy <laughs> because I was never stressed before tests. And I was always very balanced. My friends used to pull all-nighters and I, I would just cut it off at 10 p.m. and just say, I'm going to bed. I know what I know. I'm gonna do better if I rest. So how would you describe the type of medicine you practice today? Oh, geez, so many different names. I mean, it, I know back then it started as alternative medicine. Right. I don't think it should be called alternative. Yep. I like to call it integrative, but I usually use integrative holistic because mm -hmm. I feel that there are doctors that define themselves as integrative, but they're still Western doctors and their integration means that they'll talk about yoga with you or they'll think about other um complementary, let's call them therapies, but they're not really, really living that life. You know, so I incorporate supplements, I incorporate nutrition, meditation, talking about breathing, 
you know, that's the type of doctor that so I am. So how would you describe, let's say you're, you're taking the elevator up and someone says, you know, <laughs> you're a doctor and, you, and they'll say, well, how do you, what's your, what's your philosophy on medicine? How do you practice? How would, how would you describe in an elevator conversation how you practice? My philosophy is that the body has the incredible ability to heal itself if it's given the chance to do so. And in order to do that, you might have to clean out your diet, mm -hmm. your lifestyle, your mind of negativity, basically reworking your philosophy of how you live your life. And I really do think, I mean, part of my philosophy and the way that I practice medicine is not the old style paternalistic fashion of medicine that do this, 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 mm -hmm. and trust me, I can sometimes be paternalistic. I'll, I'll get on your head and I'll, I'll knock you with a hammer for, you know, for not doing what is right for yourself. But I engage the patient and empower them to see how they can also become co-creator of their health. And that I'm here to be basically an ally, um, a companion in their own health journey and to help them through the process. Because I can see the vision of what people need to do to get to a certain place, but you may not be ready to do the 10 steps that I think sure. you need to do. So then I go back and meet you. Well, where are you? You know, what's one step can you do? And sometimes I've gone as, as minimalistic as that because I realize, I don't know if you've ever gone to the doctor's office and you walk out with five supplements, like three different things to do. Sure, sure. And, a diet plan and you're thinking, okay, how am I gonna do this? So sometimes I go to, I think of this book, which is actually a business book, it's called The One Thing. Mm -hmm. And I ask my patient after I tell them all those things, I say, well, what is the one thing you know you could do when you walk out my door that is going to be successful? So you're gonna be able to do it and you're not gonna come back to me in a month and say you didn't do it. Sure. So, you, so we'll take the two things you said. So diet and lifestyle. And I, I know it's hard to generalize because we're all unique individuals and we're, we're, there's no one size fits all approach. But if you had to, you know, if we just take diet, we start with diet first. What are most people not doing? And what are most, what are, what should most people do? You know, people are always confused. What should I eat? Don't eat. You know, is this bad? Good. Like what, what are some general, what, what are some good catch-alls for people? Well, across the board, people are having or eating too much sugar Yep. and <clears throat> sugar in all its forms. So sugar, not as desserts, not as sugar cane, uh, not as sugar that you might add to a hot drink like coffee in the morning, but sugar in all its hidden sources, refined carbohydrates, bread, rice, pasta, or hidden sugars like corn uh, derivatives, high fructose corn syrup mm -hmm. or maltodextrin uh, that's added to foods. So that's the number one. Even when you're trying to be healthy, I mean, even if you walk into a health food supermarket and start reading some of the packaging that looks healthy, and now the food industry has, uh, you know, because sometimes I'll look at a package and I think, oh my gosh, like white background with beautiful green letters. Like it makes me think of like a spring day. It looks <laughs> so healthy. And then I turn it around and I see, oh, it's got 20 grams of sugar. Right. For serving, like, so you, I think sugar is ubiquitous and it's in both foods that are unhealthy for us and foods that are healthy for us. So it's the great masquerader in a sense. And even people who think they're buying healthy, 
I can't tell you how, how many people uh, or patients that I talk to across the board that don't read labels. Sure. So a lot of times one exercise that I do with a patient is they'll tell me, okay, I'm having such and such a bar and yeah, I think yeah. it's a healthy bar. And it's thanks like 50 to grams of sugar. <laughs> yeah, it's like more than a soda. Thanks yeah. to the internet, I bring it up. I go to the website, I bring up the bar and I say, well, look at how much sugar. Have you looked at the label? Do you know how much sugar is in this bar? Do you have bar? any favorite bars? I travel so much, so bars are reality when I'm traveling. Do you have any favorites? That's a tough one. Um, I like the ones, and even those I think have too much sugar, uh, that only have five ingredients. Kind? No, not Lara kind. Lara bar? No, not Lara. Um, actually, they're, they're sitting over there. Oh, RX and, bar. Yeah. RX bar, okay. So yeah, sometimes yeah, cool. I might have one of those, but honestly, my, my more of my go-to when I travel are things like nuts, like sure. really, really simple, non-perishable food. Okay, I'm glad you brought up nuts because nuts, everyone's got an opinion on nuts. <laughs> you know, peanuts, no good, cashews, no good, or, or good. Like what's your, you know, well, what's, what's your take on nuts? Peanuts are legumes. So sure. that, that's a different story. And a lot of people, <laughs> there's many reasons why peanuts can be problematic, including that peanuts tend to get contaminated with sure. aflatoxin, so, and there's a lot of people with peanut allergies. So even now on airplanes, if someone's with a, has a peanut allergy, they'll ask you to not open a container with peanuts. Right, it's, right. So it's more problematic. But other nuts, you know, their, their surface has lectins. They have phytic acid. That so can you're not be, big on the lectins either. That can, be, that can be hard to digest. But we can use traditional food preparation techniques. So you can take those almonds and soak them overnight, sprout them, and now you've reduced the phytic acid content by 30%. You've reduced the lectins. You've made it easier, less inflammatory to your digestive system, easier for you to break down and assimilate. So, what so do there you do? are ways to make their... What do you do if you don't have, like most people, it's like, I travel, I just don't have time. It's like, <laughs> to, uh, you know, it's like if you were to rank your I just bought sprouted almonds at Whole Foods. Okay. I found a brand that has sprouted almonds. I know you can buy them at okay. Trader so Joe's. sprouted almonds. That's the hidden secret. I also love walnuts. I mean, they okay. look like a brain. They're brain food. They're high in omega-3s. Uh, again, staying... When I travel, I try to stay if possible, in ketosis. So I'm keeping my blood sugar really steady. I'm powering my body with fat. Uh, and that makes it easier to get through so, like a six-hour flight. So you're segueing to like two things I also want to touch on. Look at that. <laughs> ketosis at that. and fat and fasting <laughs> and like, but it's also, so, well, okay. We, we talked about nuts and fat and I think there's so much confusing information. It's debatable, like and good seeds. fat, bad and, fat. And, and seeds. seeds. But like, honestly, if I'm on a flight and I have the choice between some packaged food or because I'm gluten-free, there are many airlines that don't have even one gluten-free option. Sure. I don't even bother when I go on the flight. I just stop at like a SIBO Express or I'll go to Whole Foods before. Yeah, or it's better. It's yeah. better to bring bring your own food. So I rather have the nuts and the seeds than eat something that I know is going to be even worse for me. And so what are your favorite healthy fats? Avocados, coconut oil. I love coconut oil. Uh, I go through probably, I should probably record this one year because I probably go through like a few gallons of olive oil per year. Yep. I love olive oil. I mean, my, even though my ancestry is Cuban, my, my, 
generations before that was Canary Islands and Spain. So I'm more of like Mediterranean blood. And I yep. really do believe that you, it's better to eat with your ancestral lineage. So the food of your ancestors is probably the best food genetically for you. Now it's getting more mishmash because there's a lot of right. uh, people of different ancestries getting together. But an example is, um, I found this many times, um, my patients from Ireland, Ireland did not, um, does not have wheat in their food supply. And sure. I find that a lot of uh, my Irish patients either have celiac genes or are sensitive to gluten. Hmm. And they develop all sorts of issues and conditions if they eat gluten or wheat. So you're leading me to another question, which is around testing and, and, and what, we should, what we should do and not do before we go to that. So like, I wanted to like go category by category. So like, what are your healthy fat? Avocado, coconut oil. Uh, olive oil. <clears throat> olive oil. Nuts. Nuts. Like walnuts. What, where do, I know it's, you know, dairy slash fat, but where are Sometimes you Sometimes I use chia. I love putting uh, chia in my smoothies or uh, hemp seeds in my smoothies. And actually recently, because I'm, I'm trying to get my son to eat more omegas, um, I've started adding hemp, uh, shelled hemp seeds to salads. Hmm. And they make, they mix in really nice and they sort of disappear. So you're not really tasting them. What about ghee and butter? Mixed feelings with that uh, because a lot of people have dairy issues. What if you don't? And what if you don't? If, have you, if you don't have dairy issues, then I would still say that you have to be careful with having excessive amounts of dairy fat because uh, I have seen it raise cholesterol. Sure. Well, well also, and, too, is and cholesterol the other thing is, And a... we haven't talked about the gut. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll get there. So, like, why I'm asking is, <laughs> like, so many it. people, you know, have, like, the Bulletproof-style coffee where it's ghee or grass-fed butter, and they put the MCT oil in. I'll do that with ghee. I don't do the grass-fed butter. But I'm just curious, and it's debatable. Some people are like, it's great. Other people are like, eh, not sure. You know, I think it depends on how you feel, because um, I did the that Bulletproof for a while, and then I went off of coffee completely, so I don't do it anymore. Although sometimes I'll add MCT oil or coconut mm -hmm. oil to my tea. And I found that I do better with just MCT oil. When I add the butter or the ghee, I don't feel as well. Interesting. And I wonder if it just has to do with the type of fat or that the fat may be carrying through the gut lining something called endotoxin that comes from the surface of gram-negative bacteria. And that's the whole other, that's the, the, the question of whether high fat is good all the time or that the fat sometimes, if someone has a disordered gut and increased gut permeability, the fat becomes the portal for lipopolysaccharide, which is also called endotoxin, to enter the body. And I've been looking at studies where the higher the endotoxin level, it predicts metabolic syndrome, obesity, risk for diabetes. So how do you know if you have it? What if you're just a healthy individual and you're like, okay, like ketosis, I'm in, heavy fat, like I feel good. I'm you should be sharp. So if you have it and you feel tired after having it, so you have to pay attention to that. Interesting. So if you eat a, a high fatty meal, and it could have to do with digesting, but say like an hour or two later, you feel kind of tired, you have to wonder, is it causing an endotoxemia? And that's kind of putting your brain on shutdown because inflammation is getting through your body. Interesting. So it's once again, going back to listening to how you feel. 
So Big it's thing. very, it, I think it's really important and that's what I do with patients. I mean, sometimes I, I consider myself a body interpreter and I think sure. a lot of us in, in healthcare are that. We're interpreting what's happening to someone's body by, right. based on what they're telling us. But also I try to teach people to really listen to their body because a lot of people don't. So I'm assuming lots of <clears throat> vegetables still pretty good. You know, vegetables a, always good. Yeah. yeah. Vegetables always good. Fiber. Yeah. Really good. I mean, fiber is the currency by which we communicate with the microbiome. I love that. What's your favorite fiber? Oh, geez. I mean, you really, it really can't, it, it can't be, it can't be, um, brought down to one. I mean, cause there's benefits to all of them. They're talking to different groups of bacteria, but there's inulin, there's aramidogalactins, uh, there's resistant starches. And what again, are your it, favorite fiber rich foods? Okay. Let me rephrase that. Better. That's better. <laughs> For me, it's dark leafy greens. Yeah. Dark leafy greens. Uh, oats are also really great, different type of fiber. So there's insoluble, soluble fiber. Yep. The, today, as I was preparing for to come to Mind Body Green, I had this image of the microbiome as a computer, a master computer communicating with our bodies as you, you know how computers communicate with ones and zeros. <laughs> and I had this vision that the microbiome is actually sending messages to our body. And we know that the bacteria on the border, on the gut border actually communicates with our immune system. So it keeps the immune system primed, but it also keeps it from being overprimed. Interesting. So it helps keep this balance in the immune system, which is so key because 70% of our immune system is all along the lining of the gut. So, okay, we're going to segue to the microbiome. Obviously, huge. I'm trying, see, huge. I'm trying to push you there. No, well, it's but, huge. It's huge, and that's where we're going anyway. Uh, so we got a couple things going on. One is there's tons of testing out there. Curious your thoughts about, you know, how, where are we? I've heard various things that we're very early on testing. It's it's like you know the internet 1997 to some you know some sometimes, tests are more accurate. So, sometimes I feel we are on the maiden voyage of La Nina, La Pinta, and La Santa Maria, crossing <sighs> the Atlantic Ocean, about to prove that the world is not flat. Uh, when it comes to microbiome testing, there are so many different companies doing all sorts of tests, the PCR test, stool cultures. Yep. What I think they are is tiny windows into the body. Right. So there is not one test that gives you the entire picture. Imagine a window like those old windows in uh, castles in England sure. that are so narrow <laughs> and they're long so you can't really see too well. <laughs> The, each test is a tiny window into the body and nothing trumps the person sitting in front of you, me like you right now, speaking to the patient. This is how I feel when I eat X or Y or, yeah. Exactly, because what I do, what I feel that I do is I'm, I'm consolidating all of the information and almost like transparencies, I'm putting what the patient feels, their feedback, their subjective experience on top of the test results, on top of my own clinical experience, on top of the science and what the science says. And the truth is somewhere there in between, but I never treat the paper by right. itself. Uh, and I think when we become reductionistic like that, we're in danger of missing something or making incorrect conclusions. And that's been after years of treating patients with gut issues. Sure. I've kind of 
and done all sorts of different gut tests. Now I will do a PCR test like Ubiome, for example, yeah. uh, but I tell my patients it's experimental and I'm doing it because I want to get a pool of patients that I've done it for and start to see if there are any patterns in there. Because they're each a window to the body. They're each checking different strains of bacteria and giving me feedback on whether they're low or high or normal. And that information might be useful. So where do you think we're going to be in like a year, three years, five years, with the microbiome specifically? Like where do you think things are going? I think that we're going to be going beyond just identifying who's there and really looking at what are they doing. <laughs> so it's not just about identifying, you know, you've got low lactobacillus, you've got some bifido. It's about looking at the metabolic products that they produce and seeing, you know, so that's called the metabolome and seeing how that affects our bodies and our genes. You know, so you asked about fiber and I said fiber is the key communicator with the right. microbiome and those little bits of data, the ones and the zeros are the metabolic products. So when the bacteria takes the fiber and digests it, it produces something called a short chain fatty acid. And those short chain fatty acids get absorbed into the body and they have effects everywhere. They regulate oh. our blood sugar. They regulate how our brain behaves. They cross the blood brain barrier. They regulate what genes are expressed. Mm -hmm. So they're having huge effect. So what do we do the in the meantime between now and then if someone's listening, <laughs> they're like, okay, like I don't want to wait. Like what are, give me, give me some foods that are, you know, undisputably good for the microbiome. Most likely plants. Yep. Lots of vegetables, <clears throat> lots of vegetables, fiber, rich foods, a variety of foods. Mm -hmm. So you, when you think of the microbiome, uh, my sickest patients have a loss of diversity. And maybe because they've been on multiple rounds of antibiotics, sure. they've looked at that. The more antibiotics you've been on, the greater risk you have of developing something like a colitis, ulcerative colitis. Yep. So it decimates your microbiome. So you want to create diversity. And what creates diversity is diversity in your food supply. So I tell patients, don't eat a monochromatic diet. Don't eat all whites and tans. Right. Like, have the greens, the reds, the yellows. You want to try to have a really broad representation of all the different colors in the foods that you choose and rotate them. So you're promoting the, the growth of different aspects of the microbiome. We've got 400 to 600 different species or strains of bacteria inside our gut. So what does that mean for meat and seafood con consumption? That also affects the microbiome. And when they've looked at uh, if you have a diet that's skewed more heavily on meat and say a paleo, that is not a plant-based paleo, right. which is how it's where it people go be. wrong. Yeah, uh, what happens is uh, a very meat-centric diet. You actually get uh, the growth of bad strains of bacteria that can disrupt your metabolism and your ability to process sugar. So you need to, basically, people need to eat a lot of vegetables, like eighty percent plant. Like if we're shooting for a gold standard, it's look, sugar is terrible. Eighty percent plant-based. If you're gonna have a little meat, have a little meat. Meat should the be, source. you know, I think uh, I saw something in a magazine a while back. Uh, I think maybe it was the beginning of 2017. And it was basically talking about how the center of the plate, meat used to be the center of the plate. It and needs now to be a condiment. Meat is moving yeah. to the side and the center of the plate are vegetables. Yep. And that's mm -hmm. always how I, I load my, my dinner plate is more vegetables than meat. 
but I do follow a paleo type diet, paleo esque. So, so one of my favorites. So I always have to ask about two things. I like coffee and alcohol. Where do they fit? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my opinion about coffee is there's studies showing its benefits. There's studies showing its detrimental effects. Sure. Balance is important. So I don't tell every patient to stop drinking coffee, but for me, and it could be genetically determined, then it's easy to know um, in a sense what your genetics are. So your P450 enzyme system in the liver is what processes Mm -hmm. coffee. I'm a slow metabolizer. So that espresso that I may have in the morning is still hanging around six hours later. And in between, it's made me jittery and sure. it's made me more anxious. So after years of on and off being on coffee, last year at the beginning of 2017, I decided I'm taking coffee out and I've never felt better. But I'm a slow metabolizer. I think, so I think I'm a fast metabolizer. So I'm not gonna, if you can have, <laughs> if you can have a shot of espresso and go to sleep yeah. an hour later, yep. You're a fast metabolizer, so you're okay so with I, coffee. So I actually took the 23andMe test, and one mm-hmm. of the things they tell you is like you're, you're something to do with caffeine. I don't remember the exact language, but it, it led me to believe I'm probably fine. That, but I never have the jitters anyway. It's like I could drink, not that I drink a gallon, but like I, but always, me, always good to for do. a slow metabolizer. A morning coffee could be affecting the quality of their sleep at night. Sure, even though Colleen, my wife, is like that. Even though yeah. they don't, you might think you're getting good sleep, or you're getting right. the number of hours, but you're not getting good quality sleep. So, what about alcohol? What's good? What's uh-huh. bad? What's neutral? <laughs> not, not, and everyone also like you know moderation, obviously. There are what, so what, what many. What are the betters? Like, if, <laughs> if you have to, like, if you're like, you know what, I want a drink. I want to make the healthiest choice. Like, what, how would you rank? Like, top three if you're going to have a drink. Well. This may sound crazy, but number one would be tequila. Yep. You and Mark Hyman. And the reason for that, it's, it's very low in sugar. Yep. It's much cleaner, easier to process. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would say probably number two in that category would be vodka. Mm -hmm. And again, it all depends on how it's mixed because a a lot of the mixed drinks have a lot of sugar in them. Yep. Um, third, I would say is a wine, uh, maybe a red wine because of, uh, polyphenols, Mm -hmm. resveratrol, but then that, that gets into a whole conversation about, uh, all the things that they do in the wine processing industry, the addition of sulfites, which a lot of people are sensitive to, um, dry farm wines does a good job of sourcing. We love those guys. I like dry farm wines. I'm pretty partial. I know I'm, I'm very, I'm like a canary in a sense. If I have a wine that has too many sulfites or is not, not quite right. The other, the other thing is how the wine is fermented. Mm-hmm. So I'm no, I'm good with French and Italian wines because they've been fermented with the natural yeast that grows on the grape. Whereas wines from California, they add brewer's yeast mm. and they add sulfites. Interesting. And I don't do well with those. So I, I've always, when it comes to wine, I've had patients who have come up allergic to brewer's yeast and I'll tell them, well, you can probably be okay with French and Italian wines. So those are the only wines you can wow. drink. And when I was in, I actually went on a tour of a, of a winery in Italy and learned that pretty much 
all wine in Italy is produced in a biodynamic form. Yep. And they're using, they're not adding extra sulfites. I mean, the grape does have some sulfites, but they're not adding extra sulfites, which they do in California because a lot of the wines are not bottled where they're picked. So the, what the sulfites do is they're antibacterial and they stabilize the wine for transport. Interesting. Until it gets bottled. So <laughs> talk to me about, you touched on this earlier, intermittent fasting and ketosis. Mm, yeah. I'm actually producing um, a great post for Mind Body Green on I that. I love it. Yeah. Um, I think that that might be kind of the magic combination is working with flexible ketosis and intermittent fasting. And there's so many ways to dice this up. I mean, um, I've done a number of articles on all the different types mm -hmm. of intermittent fasting. It's interesting what people think of as intermittent fasting because there's so many different definitions. It could be a 12-hour fast sure. overnight. It could be 14, 16 hours. It could be every day, There's which the to five me, two thing that yeah, Longo it could be doing. the five yeah. two where um, you're doing it two days a week, yep. uh, or you could reverse it and you're doing it five days a week, and then you have two days when you're off. And I think that creates a lot of confusion. And again, there's no one size fits all. It's about finding what works for each person sure. and the level of fast. The other question is: Is it the same for women versus men? Right. And it seems that for women, if they do too long of a fast, that it's going to slow the metabolism and they can start to gain weight. Whereas guys, they seem to do okay with doing 14, 16 hours. Wow. So you could do an overnight. And then there's the... So women should do shorter, like 12. 12 hours. Wow. Which is... Yeah. That, that's interesting. And then there's the, the, I guess, what we would call flexible ketosis, where maybe you've ha you've had dinner you finished at 7:30 the following morning you're having a bulletproof coffee or you're having a call it a bulletproof tea or tea with sure. mct oil so you're not breaking the fast well are you because you're putting fat in there you're, all of a sudden you're, it's a lot of fat and there's calories but you're not bumping your insulin uh, so is that the definition of so you're not so you're so basically um, if you look at Dr. Uh, Longo's uh, research on fast mimicking diet, yep. <clears throat> uh, the way it's designed is that even though you're eating, you're not affecting your blood sugar. So your body thinks that you're fasting. So, the so it keeps you, so you're kind of, in, you're almost cheating the fast, but I use that in patients that aren't going to be able to make it to lunchtime and stay sharp. You know, sure. patients that are in finance, patients who have really high demand jobs that need those MCT oils to create ketone bodies that go to the brain and keep your brain really sharp. Sure. So th there's so much information out there and every, you know, and everyone's got an opinion and, 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 you know, someone listening, they may say like, okay, just like, tell me what to do. Like, what are the basics catch all for, if you were to give, you know, let's go back in that elevator and someone says, mm. all right, doc, I just tell me, give me, give me some basics that I can do tomorrow and not, and, and be probably okay. I go back to Michael Pollan, uh, eat mostly plants. Yep, eat food, not too much, mostly not plants, yeah. Mostly plants. Uh, what I would add is when it comes to meats, uh, be really wise about where they're sourced. Mm -hmm. uh, try to stay away from meats that have been corn-fed, grain-fed. So grass-fed. Uh, grass-fed, pasture-raised, wild-caught. I just heard a lecture on environmental toxins, including pesticides and glyphosate. 
and all the different ill effects that it creates in the body and also the potential for having effects on an unborn uh, baby. So, Jesus, scary. And um, so I really do think that it's important to eat organic as much as possible. There's been arguments on both sides of the board. Why be organic? Mm-hmm. And I really do think that for if you want to optimize your health the best possible, you eat organic most of the time. Yep. So eat lots of plants, eat organic, and source your meats from clean sources. And what about going back to like the lifestyle piece? So let's say like someone's doing that. What have you seen in terms of lifestyle? Like what are the things, not that we can, you know, go run off to a monastery you can, or- Look, you can, you can <clears throat> be, you honestly, I see these patients, you can be a type A yogi that checks off all the boxes, goes to the yoga class and you know, has a high stress job and is not living the lifestyle even though they're on the surface doing it because they have to address the mind component. Right. So I really, really do think that the, the mind is essential in meditation, relaxation, finding ways to that speak to you. So meditation may not be for everyone. For me, going out into the middle of nowhere and hiking on a mountain, sure, that is a meditation. Meditation in motion. Meditation in nature, in motion. powerful. Well, there's been so many studies around the power of being in nature. As it's real. Well, the energy that we pick up, and I think uh, in our time that has become so technological and so city focused. Uh, you know, like in Peru, where I, I went to Machu Picchu, almost the entire population lives in or around Lima. So one part of the state, and it's just a, it's an example of what's happening in the world and we're losing our humanity in a sense, because we are biological beings. We're not our smartphones. We're not our computers. Don't get me started on big tech. It's terrible. we're, We're not, we're not computers. And we need to realize that as biological beings, we have a rhythm that is affected by the movement of the the moon and the planets and the rotation of the earth. And if we can go out in nature and connect with that biological side of us, uh, that can only have positive effects. Do you ever prescribe nature for people? Absolutely. What does that look like on the RX pad? You just, (laughs) what do you You, know? Seriously, what would you say to someone? You need to go walk in the park at least twice a week. Like it, and I try to be as practical as possible. I don't tell someone in New York that you need to go to the Catskills and no, go on, right. a, on a hike. I'm like, okay, what neighborhood do you live in? You're in Brooklyn. Okay, you can go to Prospect Park. Great. So I want you to go and walk in Prospect Park and spend time in the park at least once a week, but better two or three times a week. You, it's amazing what it can do for someone who's anxious. I love that. That's one of the reasons why I love Dumbo. The parks right here, the I water. Mean, it's... The other thing that I've seen and we haven't talked about is the power of pets. Mm-hmm. I have seen a new puppy bring down a patient's blood pressure. Oh my God. And just the, the unconditional love that one gets from having a pet and pets are obviously not for everyone. Sure. But for someone who does take to a pet, pets can be incredible, incredible healers for people. So where do you think wellness and health, where do you think things are going in the next like year or three years? Like, what do you think the future is? I think one of the biggest things that's happening and, and I'll go back to the, you know, I was just, uh, 
going down on technology and how bad it is for us. But on the flip side, what it has done and what the internet has done, it has connected all of us. And it has connected us with the free flow of information and has connected us to information that is as current as yesterday. You know, so we can know the newest scientific studies. Uh, we can learn about our health conditions. And I think what's going to happen in the future, I mean, I think it's a rise in consciousness, a rise in understanding of what really creates health. And I think in a society where, you know, in the U.S., Medicare is going to be half the gross domestic product by 2050. If it's we don't, insane. Yeah, yeah, if we don't do <clears throat> something, we need to increase our health consciousness and our understanding of what it is, what does it take to be healthy? And I think, I think that's one of the most important, I mean, I don't know if that's describing a trend in the future, but I think with smartphones, with the ability to have really key, good information at your fingertips, uh, I think you're going to see people becoming healthier Sure. and realizing, you know, we've already seen the trend in the last decade and a half. Uh, people who could not be healed through the we regular Western model started learning from people who healed themselves through diet and lifestyle, sure. and they're following that. 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 50 years ago, there was no way to communicate with someone in the other side of the world that you had never met that had the same experience as you, but now people can find each other. Yeah. So you mentioned information and, and, and food and healing. We have an amazing functional nutrition program, which you're a part of. Why, why do people need to take this program other than getting access to you, which is very hard to get? <laughs> it is very hard to get. Thanks to you guys. And thanks to, uh, you know, a lot of things that I've done. I'm, I'm trying to get more and more out there. But look, you get it's like sitting at the table with me, with Dr. Hyman, with Dr. Joel Kahn, and getting filtered, pre-filtered, curated advice on what are the best ways to live healthy. You know, so instead of having to spend hours and hours trying to curate the information on the internet and seeping through what is true and what isn't true, you have doctors that have put the information together for you and it's funny because you mentioned at the beginning, um, before, I think before we were on the air about Joel Kahn, and um, he has a very uh, specific viewpoint on what type of diet is good for everyone. Sure. And when I did my office hours, that was one of the questions that came up. Yep. I'm confused because Dr. Kahn says this, Dr. And I'm really good at kind of giving a broad overview and, and understanding of why are there different viewpoints. You know, so it's not all black and white sure. in medicine, but you have to take that and then make it your own. And I think the, the best way I can say is that when I was in my sabbatical year after finishing my residency training, I did a yoga teacher training. I did not become a yoga teacher, but one thing it did for me, it, it deepened my own understanding of yoga and the practice of yoga. It got me into back into meditation, into breathing and helping others, even through uh, just breath work and helping my patients. So even for someone who doesn't have plans to become a health coach, taking a course like this can better their own health. They can use the knowledge to better the health of their family, of their loved ones, maybe change the way that they cook at yep. home. Uh, so there's a lot of benefits to taking a course like this that can really deepen your understanding of how to use food as medicine yep. that 
it doesn't have to be that you want to go afterwards and train as a nutritionist or become a health practitioner. Uh, I didn't become a yoga teacher, but yoga became a part of me. Sure. Well, this uh, food as medicine is so powerful and health begins on your plate. So just starting there is super powerful. It's a great program. It's the program I wish I had when I began my own health journey 10 years ago. Uh, So what keeps you up at night and what has you excited every morning? Uh, Well, aside from my business, uh, (laughs) worrying about my my business and uh, just the ins and outs of days and um, what keeps me up at night sometimes is uh, getting excited about uh, new information that I want to assimilate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for example, the other night I was sent a book on uh, mitochondria that's uh, actually being uh, published in March, or we are in March, but it's coming out in the next couple of weeks. And I was reading about mitochondria and all the details of the internal membrane and the electron transport chain. And I stayed up much longer than I was (laughs) intending to, but I was really captivated reading, you know, because now as a clinician making all the connections and thinking, okay, this is why a micronutrient like iron is so important because it is part of the electron transport chain of the mitochondria, and there are hundreds of them in every single muscle cell. Mm -hmm. So iron is not just about anemia. Iron is about powering our factory that makes energy. So stuff like that can keep me up. Sometimes I will stay up because I'm a night meditator. So I will meditate before I go to bed. What type of meditation will you do at night? uh, That's a really good question. Um, My meditation practice has evolved over the years. Uh, so it can be as simple as just breath work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be um, actually at uh, last year's Mind Body Green Revitalize, uh, there was a great um, one of the persons that I, I'm so bad with names, but he led us through meditation. Light Watkins? Not light, no. Charlie? Maybe. Charlie Knowles? He's more kind of like a, a physical oh, extreme you're guy. Oh, Brian McKenzie. Pro- breath work. Yeah, yeah. breath work. And he did the five, five, ten, five yeah. breath. Yeah, yeah, that's Brian McKenzie. Yeah. And I found that to be what he said at the beginning of that is I breathe so I can meditate. That to me is one of the most powerful statements that I've heard. And I'll use that breath before I just sit in meditation and just go into my smooth breath, the yep. five, five, ten, five, or I'll work my way up three, three, six, three, and then up to five, five, ten, five. I've gone back to my yoga practice and done alternate nostril breathing. Sure, always a good one. As, as a way, I find that that's a really, um, if I don't feel grounded, uh, that that will ground me really mm-hmm. fast and then I can sit in meditation. I've used all sorts of um, guided imagery, even thinking about the different energy centers in the body and kind of focusing my attention there. So it's almost like a mantra, like focused attention. Uh, So those are the- You've done it all, I love it. Those are the different styles that that I do. And and I don't have a time frame because I find that once I get into the meditation, I kind of know how long I need to sit with Mm -hmm. it. And sometimes it's 30 minutes. Sure, sometimes maybe two. Yeah, sometimes it's just short and sometimes it just feels so good and I'm in a really good space and I don't want to leave it. 
I just right. want to stay there. I love I love your ability to be flexible because that's not something that I think everyone has in wellness and can be a little, you know, it's tough. It, 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 I think it's it's hard for people to say like, okay, like I'm going to go with it. Sometimes I'm going to go longer. Sometimes I'm going to go shorter. It's so much easier to be like, I have to do 20 or I have to do whatever it is, work out. Like it's, it's great to really tune in and that's hard. And, and being a Virgo and <laughs> a, a former type A perfectionist, I can former, tell you. Former, you retired? <laughs> I, I'm, I've you moved, you moved down to type B? I don't know. <laughs> there are pieces of me that are type A, but I, I don't embrace all the, the pieces of, of type A that um, like the overpowering yourself uh, there's there's that fine line between forcing yourself to do something because you feel that it's right and listening to your body sure. and realizing that your body just doesn't want to do this today. Like, you know, it, you could uh, apply it to running. Uh, maybe you're a three miler, and but one day you're feeling really good and you feel like going five miles. Another right. day you go out and at one mile you're hitting a wall and you're like, I I'm don't done. really feel like like running, <laughs> but. If you're the person that will push through that one mile, maybe you'll be okay, or maybe you injure yourself because you pushed yourself too hard on a day that your body just didn't right. want to. So last question, if you could go back and give yourself advice when you were fresh out of med school and starting to practice, what advice would that be? Ah, don't take anything too seriously. Uh, I think that's good. I think just that's good for anyone. Flow with it. Uh, I mean, I think it, starting to practice, you, the question could be, uh, what advice do you have for an entrepreneur starting a business? You know, it's, it's across the board. Uh, I just lost someone uh, that was very dear to me as a child. Uh, she had been raised as almost as if she was my father's sister. Uh, the two families were cross-generational cross friends. So my grandparents were friends with her parents. My father and her were about the same age, and they were raised almost as siblings. They lived close together in Havana. When they came to Miami, they lived one block away from us. And she was someone who always laughed. It didn't matter, and she had a she had a child that ended up dying at 17 years old, Oof. of I believe it was a kidney disease, and yet she had this spirit of joy of life, and that no challenge was too great, and she always kept her sense of humor, and she actually just passed away on on Friday, and. The impact of that, I think there is a power every time we lose somebody because we have time to reflect about who they were sure. and what they did for us. And what she did for me is that she never made me feel that any dream that I had was too big for me to accomplish. Uh, there was nothing that was impossible. And that's what I learned from her and so important as an entrepreneur. But the, the flip side of it is, is that she didn't do it seriously. She did it with humor. Hmm. You know, so nothing was ever too serious. And I think that's the, the one piece of advice I would give to my younger self when faced with all sorts of challenges that one may face, becoming a new business owner, sure. or opening a practice, or being an entrepreneur. Things are going to go wrong. And you can either panic and think the sky is falling, or you can just kind of breathe. <laughs> and say, okay, I'm gonna get through this, I'm gonna be strong, and you'll be fine. 
And that's the advice I would give the younger self. I love that. Very sage advice indeed. Vincent, thank you so much. Everyone check out Vincent's amazing book, Happy Gut. Check out the Functional Nutrition Program. Thanks so much, everyone. Mm-hmm.